Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Thank you so much for doing this, number one. Uh, This is really exciting to, to have all of you guys available and for us to talk about all of the different things that went on during the 90s, not only with your team, but obviously as everything has gone on with the Bulls, talking with you guys about what it was like to be around. So here we have former Blackhawks coach Craig Hartsburg here with us, former White Sox manager Gene Lamont, former Cubs manager Jim Riggleman, and former Bears head coach Dave Wanstead. Okay, first things first. As a White Sox fan, Gene, I got to tell you, I've been really upset watching the Last Dance documentary because in all the moments that we talk about the White Sox, we aren't talking about the fact that the 93 White Sox were hoping to win a World Series and the 94 White Sox could have won the World Series. It's been driving me insane. So I wanted to talk with you. During that time, 93-94, while, while Jordan is both winning a championship and then going away, what was it like for the White Sox back then? Well, you know, myself, I was a big Bull fan. I, I grew up with Chet Walker and Jerry Sloan and Norm Van Leer, so I was really interested in the Bulls. So, uh, of course, glad to see them win. But, you know, when you're fighting for a championship, you lose a little bit of what's going on in the other sports, I think. But it was interesting. You know, uh, you have Michael Jordan in town, the best basketball player maybe ever. So it was interesting. How strange was it the the night where he's throwing out the first pitch and then everyone finds out that he's getting ready to retire? Well, you know, we, we were just glad to see him, see him there. You know, they won a championship. And uh, we kind of heard something about him retiring. I, I didn't think it was possible. But, you know, it came, then we were uh, lucky enough to have him with us for a while. Riggs, have you been watching this documentary? Uh, bits and pieces of it. Uh, my close friends are watching it all. I've got it taped, and I will eventually tune into it more. But, uh, you know, I, I'm pretty familiar with the, the history of, of Michael Jordan there. So so what's what's the most interesting part of it for you, where you're living in that same era, what was it like in this town for the Cubs while the Bulls were doing all of this great stuff? Yeah, you know, it's a, Chicago is just a great city, period. You know, what what Gene and, and Dave and, and Coach Hartzog did with their ball, with their clubs and the hockey club, uh, it's just a great sports town. And, you know, but you get so self-absorbed. I think Gene kind of touched on it. You get self-absorbed with your own club and – uh, you know, you really are so focused on your team and your season and where you're going that uh, you're kind of looking at the other teams in town pretty much like you would if you were looking at somebody on the West Coast. They're not your team, and you'll focus on them. If you're not in the offseason and they are, you certainly will be watching them. But, uh, you know, you got your hands full with your own team. Craig, what was it like for for the the Hawks at that point in time? Because the, the Hawks had been on a decent run over that decade 
to to share the building with with the championship era of Bulls. Well, I, I agree with the Jim. I think you're you are absorbed with your own uh, team for the most part, but it, you you have to be uh, a complete moron at that point not to know that there was something special going on in Chicago with the basketball team. It was, uh, uh, it, and we were in the same building, but it, it, interesting. We were there. Uh, they weren't there. And obviously when they were there, we were out of town. So we really didn't cross over that much. And, uh, I'm not a huge basketball fan, but, uh, last year, obviously here in Canada with the Raptors, uh, it got your attention. And I know when I was in Chicago, I, I wasn't a huge basketball fan, but, Obviously, what was going on there with uh, the Bulls was something special. And uh, I think winning can be contagious in the city. And I think it uh, uh, it raised the bar for everybody at that time that we that we had something to, to try to chase. And obviously, no, none of us could catch it. They were they were a pretty special group that uh, that Bulls team. Dave, I, I jumped up and down while I was watching the episodes on Sunday because I saw you in the background at one of the games. I, I was. I had uh, a good friend of mine from high school back in Pittsburgh. Uh, he was the marketing director. Bill Schmidt was his name for Gatorade. And maybe Jim or Jane or, or Craig may know Bill. And he actually signed Michael to his Gatorade contract. And he signed Peyton Manning to his Gatorade contract. And Bill and I were longtime buddies. And he had four seats right on the floor. So I had... Uh, I had good seats whenever, whenever I could make it. But um, I tell you what, I, um, I I would agree with what Gene, all the guys said. Really, I mean, in Chicago, it's a sports town. I mean, I went to Cubs games when Jim was there, and Sammy Sosa somehow he ended up in my box about half the NFL season in Miami when I was coaching the Dolphins. How that happened, I have no idea. And then and then with Gene. You know, I do the Fox stuff now in L.A., and when the crossover right now with baseball and, and football, I fly out back and forth half the time out of Chicago with Frank Thomas, and we become good friends. And, uh, and Craig, I was a, a big fan. I would Mario Lemieux and I were, were friends from my Pittsburgh days, and uh, so I, I went to several Blackhawk games. So I think it's a great sports time, and, you know, I because of my connection with Bill, I kind of uh, had a relationship there. I actually got to know Phil pretty well too. He lived about a half a mile from me down where I lived up there in Lake Forest. So uh, the one thing with that whole, and I've been watching it, and I don't know if these other guys, I as close as I was, and I'm a basketball fan, I had no idea that Michael Jordan was as good as he was. You know, I mean, I think being here. Personally, I just kind of took it for granted that he would make the last second shot and win another game, you know, and I think everybody I took him for granted, really, as far as his ability level and, and what he was all about. So this has been this watching this thing has been real, really interesting to me. One of the, the, the themes that have come out of it has been Jordan's ability to try and bring his teammates along and his desire to lead and what leadership is. And in some, some cases it, it seems very hard. Like the, the way that he goes about leading, you all have coached great players and, and Riggs, I'm going to start with you when it comes to dealing with great players, 
Is there anything that connects them? Is there anything that that you've noticed makes a great player a great player outside of their ability? Well, yeah, you said it. You know, the, I think the talent uh, is, is uh, number one. But then, you know, there's just some special guys that the other guys will kind of follow their lead. Um, you know, Sammy, uh, Dave mentioned Sammy, and, you know, he did all those great things in Chicago. But uh, I think our ball club at that time really kind of rallied around Mark Grace a lot. Mark had a, uh, a way about himself that his consistency – and his, uh, his talent level, his confidence, uh, you know, he felt like doesn't matter who's pitching, he could hit him. So I think uh, that loosened some guys up. His, his personality was like that. So probably a little bit harder. You know, it's not like you're having a quarterback in football or you're only one of five players on the court in basketball. It's a little harder in baseball. But uh, if, you're, if you're asking for somebody like that for us, I, I would say it would be Mark. Gene, you, you have Frank Thomas. You have one of the greatest players that's ever played. What was his style of leadership or approach to doing his job? Well, I Frank, I think Frank probably he just led by examples more. Just such a good hitter, you know. Uh, and I, you know, I had Michael there a couple of spring trainings, and I think one of the things that Michael showed he worked so hard that he demanded that everybody else did that. You know, he worked hard in baseball, and I'm sure he was a talented is there is a basketball player, but I think his work ethic and his competitiveness probably made him maybe the best player of all time. And I think that's probably one thing that uh, the great players have. They're all, they're competitors. And that's what you look for, great competitors. And, you know, Frank was, Jack McDowell was. And one guy that people don't talk about on our team was Joey Cora. I think he was a real important player for our team just because of that. When you got Jordan to to spring training, were you worried at all that because he was Michael Jordan that he wasn't going to be coachable? I mean, this the, he has to learn or relearn a whole new sport, and and here he is, maybe the most famous person on the planet at the time. What was you guys' approach in dealing with it? Well, you know, Walt Riniak handled the hitting with him, and, and you can see that Michael wanted to work at it. So I saw him, seen him a little bit in Chicago in the winter, and you could tell, you know, he was going to go about it the right way. Uh, you know, the only downer of him being in spring training that first year was we'd won our division in 93, and I thought that spring training should be about Frank Thomas and Jack McDowell, uh, Robin Ventura, and it wasn't uh, Michael's fault at all, but he got all the attention, you know, so uh, – it was a little bit of a downer, I thought, but he went about it the right way, and, and he didn't want the attention. Craig, on the ice, when it comes to the great players, you, you've been a part of teams of great players, you've coached great players. What is it about their leadership style that you can see playing out no matter what sport you're talking about? Well, I think the the, the one thing that we've already talked about is the work habits and work ethic. I think – Anybody that's a top player or, or a great leader, uh, that's the first intangible they have is they have a superior work habits. And I think the, the other thing is that that desire, that fire inside to win and to be the best. Uh, you look at a, a Gretzky or Mark Messier uh, with the Hawks when I was there, uh, Chris Chelios, they, they, they demanded so much of themselves that uh it 
it carried over to their to their teammates and some of them would uh all they had to do was stare at players and it, it felt like i better get going or or verbally sometimes they'd have to talk uh but for the most part it's just their actions and and if you weren't pulling your weight you certainly f- would feel embarrassed you know especially the effort that those guys would put in so the work habits and that fire from inside that you re- that you will do whatever it takes to win and to me that's uh, again watching michael jordan and the stories about him he he had those two things for sure he made a point of saying that he never asked anyone on the team to do something that he wouldn't do and how craig how important is that that the guy that is demanding all of those things has to also put himself through those trials to be great. Well, I, oh, it's a hundred percent. You're right. And, and I, again, I think it's uh, there's probably less verbal uh, com- verbal things said to their teammates. It's it's how you go about your business and practice, uh, your preparation, uh, the full season. There's no downtime for those those type of players that, and and their teammates notice that and. Uh, like you said, they're they're not asking uh, players to do something that they don't do. Dave, inside your locker room, when it came to leadership, what were you looking for? What what made a great leader for you? Well, I think the same things that all the other guys said. Really, I mean, I I don't have any any uh, any intangible things or any secrets that haven't been talked about. To be honest with you. Uh, a player though, I was thinking of players as these other guys were talking and, you know, sometimes it's the, not the best player on the team that might be the guy that can raise uh, the rest of the uh, guys around him, raise their level of play up. The guy I had didn't, I didn't even, I, I coached him. I mean, I was with him at Miami and I was with him at the Cowboys all those years. Michael Irving was a guy that first guy comes to mind because I was coaching defense and I had, you know, some hall of fame defensive players, and he would come over before a game or before practice and just his attitude. I mean, the guy really could have played linebacker. I mean, he had a attitude of winning, like Craig was saying, and of working and, and all the things that the other guys said. Michael was off the charts. He truly was as a player and as a competitor. And uh, he comes to mind. If there was one player, even though I didn't personally coach him, but he would come over to our defensive side and, and, and get the guys going. And that's, you know, that you don't see that from a receiver. Would he want to know what you guys were doing on defense too? No. Oh God, no. He just wanted to make sure guys were practicing. <laughs> he, he didn't care. As long as, they, as long as they didn't score more points than they could score, that's all he cared about. <laughs> Riggs, what was this like? I mean, I, obviously you have ton, tunnel vision that's going on. What's going on with your teams? Like what what's happening with your teams? But as far as like a vibe in the city, while this this level of winning is going on, what did it feel like to kind of watch it from afar? Or you come back from a road trip and you see the Bulls are on a run and and see how well that they're doing. Yeah, you know it's it was uh, we we did enjoy. I mean, you know, like the other guy said, we we knew how good the Bulls were and how great this this special guy Michael Jordan was. You know, so uh, it was you know you're trying to play catch up and. Um, you know, in Chicago, before I ever got there, it, it had, you'd hear this, uh, the lovable losers, you know, like, hey, it's day games, everybody's out there at the ballpark having fun. 
uh, win or lose. It wasn't like that. Chicago's a great sports town, but they, they, they are not happy if you're not winning. I mean, you know, they were on me hard. And, and uh, I've talked to some other managers about that who, who were there after me, and they said, man, I, th- I thought this was going to be a little bit of a sweetheart gig here with the Cubs, but these fans are killing me here. And, and I like that. You know, I like their passion. They, they were not rude. They just would let you know that hey, what's going on there is not satisfactory. You know, you've got to step it up like, like they're doing across town, the Bulls and, and, um, and Bears are doing. You know, we got to pick it up. So, um, you know, they raised the bar for us, and we, we finally got there in 98, but it, it was, uh, you know, it's a tough challenge. What was the pressure like for you, Dave? Because clearly with the history of the Bears as a franchise – and 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 when you're taking over this franchise, what's that pressure like when you need to live up to a tradition? Oh, I, you know what? I'm going to go back to Gene's statement. We we kind of our guys enjoyed the Bulls. They were all fans. They followed them as I did. I went to games whenever I could. But uh, we we were living in our own little bubble. You know, we were just trying to make trying to find a way to tackle Barry Sanders or somebody. I mean, we really weren't thinking much from that standpoint. And maybe I was naive to it, you know, but we were just so focused on what we were trying to do that that really wasn't a factor. And like I say, I had good relationships with, I was always intrigued by Phil, you know, because he was, I knew Pat Riley pretty good. And uh, his style was more of a football coach mentality, you know what I mean? And Phil was so different the way he handled players and the way he approached things that, you know, we said that, that intrigued me almost as much as the team, just seeing him go through the ups and the downs and the, you know, adversity and everything that happens during a season. Uh, that, that was very interesting to me from a coach's perspective. Do you think that his style could have ever worked in the NFL? Oh, Sure. I mean, you sure could. I mean, you every, every you got to be your own guy, and if you got good players, you're going to win. You know, I mean, it's it, there's no one style that has to is cut out of stone that that you have to be. There's been a lot of coaches fired trying to be Vince Lombardi. <laughs> That's true, Gene. Sharing ownership with 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 the Bulls and things going as well for the White Sox as as they were going when you were managing. How happy was Jerry Reinsdorf? Well, he's real happy, I'm sure, because we were both winning at the time, you know. And actually, we were, you know, it was always kind of a Cub city, you know, Chicago was. And we thought we were making headway as far as maybe becoming a White Sox city, you know. I mean, we uh done okay in 92, 93. Uh, we won our division, got beat by Toronto, who won the World Series. Then 94, we were winning until a strike came. But you know, Jerry was interested in the Bulls, but I, I believe Jerry liked the Bulls, but I believe Jerry wanted to win the World Series as much as anything. So, But we knew what was going on, and maybe that wasn't pushed on us by any means, but because he was the owner of the Bulls, you know, we probably heard about it more. Yeah, I, I've always I've always felt that even though Jerry Reinsdorf won six championships for the Bulls, with the Bulls, I feel like that one championship in 05 – with the White Sox might mean more to him than the other six combined. Well, I'm sure he was awful happy to win those six, but I know uh, when Jerry won in 05, he was as happy as an owner could be. You know, he, he longed to win the world series and bring it back to 
Chicago, and I was real happy for him. Riggs, what is the pressure of managing in a town where your fan base in particular, the, the Cubs fan base, you spoke a little bit about it, they're so ravenous. Like, they wanted a winner so badly. Walking into that that pressure cooker of things, people wanting to, to see the Cubs succeed, how did you handle that? What, what were the, the keys to handling it for you? You know, I think um, that's a great question. I'll try not to be too long-winded, but, um, you know, I, I don't know Craig as well as I know the other guys, uh, you know, and watch their work, Gene, and I've always been a big Dave Wonstadt fan because I'm a Pennsylvania guy myself. But, um, you know, um, the the whole um, preparation, you know, I, Gene worked a long time in the minor leagues. I worked a long time in the minor leagues. I'm sure Dave was a lot of places before he was with the Chicago Bears. He, When you have been working under good people, you've learned, you've learned how to manage, uh, you've learned how to be a head coach, you've gone through, through the process, uh, you know, like Gene did with uh, Jim Leland. Jim was a longtime minor league manager, and, and Gene did the same thing. Well, when you get to the big leagues, you get to the NFL. You know what? This is this is not tough. I know what I'm doing. I can I can manage this game. The guy in the other dugout's not going to outmanage me. I'm not going to outmanage him. As Dave said, if my players play good enough, we're going to win. But I didn't feel any pressure because I knew what I was doing. I, I was confident in my decisions. And um, you know, if people got on me about those decisions, you know, I, I, as much as I respected the fans, they don't know the game the way I do. So. I was, I never felt any pressure. I, you know, as I've tried to tell people many times, pressure would be uh, raising a family of five on a, on a salary of 40 hours a week at uh, 10 bucks an hour back in the day. You know, that's pressure. What we were doing was, was pure joy. You're getting to run a ball club, manage a ball game at the major league level, and you know what you're doing. So you didn't feel the pressure. Craig, what about you? And the pressure of the Blackhawks at the time, when when you took over the Hawks, the, there was pressure to to bring a winner to Chicago. So how how did you deal with that? Well, I was a young coach. I'd uh, it's my first job in the National Hockey League, and uh, as a head coach, as assistant coach for four years before the, uh, uh, but, but again, I think it's it's a, you're talking about it's your instincts in of the game that you know and you trust your 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 judgments and you know the game you know people in the game and uh, you have to trust yourself and going into Chicago, I know there was big expectations and I felt that we, uh, you know, we came through in, in the first year and then again, a free agency hurt our hockey team uh, for the next couple of years I was there, but uh, it's, it, it was a great experience coaching in Chicago, the, the passion of the people and the fans of, of every sport. But uh, again, Sunday nights, at the Chicago uh, at, at United Center, it, it was a special. Saturday night was usually the Bulls. Sunday afternoon was the Bears, and then we'd finish the weekend off as a, as a Sunday night. There was not there was never a better crowd than that Sunday night at the United Center. It was just a, an electric place. Uh, something that I, I, I re, it brings chills down my spine right now. Just thinking of the national anthem there at the United Center and. I was pretty fortunate to coach there. I got four old school guys right here. Four old school dudes. 
I'd love to know from each of you, and and Dave, I'm going to start with you. What's what's a piece of old school advice that you think is still relevant in your game right now? Oh, advice? That's what you said. You want advice? Yeah. What's some What's something that it would still that would still work? Yeah. I would say this, and I got this from Marv Levy when I was 22 years old, and he was coaching at the Kansas City Chiefs. I didn't even know he coached there. And he's, we were talking, and he said, let me tell you something. He said, you tell these players, he says, make sure they know where they're supposed to be and be on time. And I think I used that every place I coached. I said, I'm not going to give you a, a thousand rules, but if you just do this one, it'll give you a chance. And I think that, you know, that if you if you don't do that, you got no chance, right? So that would be one thing that I think that today's players would still have to uh, still have to abide by and understand if you wanted to win, have any chance to win. Craig, what about you? What's something that's old school hockey that still rings true in 2020? Well, the game, the, the National Hockey League and hockey everywhere has changed dramatically over the last 10 years. And uh, there's a more speed, there's more skill, there's more creativity in the game, which is great. And it's, uh, it's made the game better. But I think at the end of the day, still the team that wins and the players that are best still have that willingness to physically pay the price. And you don't win a Stanley Cup unless you're prepared to physically pay the price and add in all the other speed, skill and that. But again, the game still becomes a battle uh, physically. And if you want to win, you better remember that. All right. I got two old school baseball skippers here. You guys have seen a lot of winning in your career. But what's something that you can take from the the coaches that you had? And Riggs, I'm going to start with you. What's something you could take from the coaches that you had and you could give it to a 20-year-old right now and it would still make sense? Uh, I think uh, George Kistel, who was a great uh, instructor, did everything imaginable with the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, you know, I, I had the pleasure of working around him and under him for many years. And George basically said, treat players the way you wanted to be treated. And and that set well with me because I, I wanted to be treated with some discipline. I, wa- I wanted to know somebody's watching. I know that, uh, you know, if I wasn't uh, playing at the, the level and intensity that I should be playing, that if there's somebody there who cares, he's going to get on me. And I felt that's, I tried to carry that. I tried to, you know, let players know that, hey, I love what you're doing out here, man. Keep it going. You're working hard. But if they were sloughing off a little bit, you know, make sure you address that issue. And um, because I wanted that for myself, I wanted to know somebody was watching it. If I could say this to mention one more guy, Bob Skinner was a, a guy that managed in the big leagues. His son, Joel Skinner's had a nice career in the big leagues. Bob Skinner, I was managed against him. And he said to me one time, if you get a chance to manage in the big leagues, at the time we were in AAA, he said, if you get a chance to manage in the big leagues, uh, put out small fires before they become big fires. And, you know, you're playing a long schedule, six months of baseball, uh, things start happening. You, you, know, you sense a little something's going on. There's some fractions on the team that are, uh, you know, and, and snuff that out, you know, get to that, get to the base of that, because if you don't, Somewhere along the line, it's going to come back to bite you. 
Gene, what about you? What What's a piece of advice or something that holds true, whether it's 1975 or 2020? Well, you know, I, I see nowadays, you know, you almost got, well, you're supposed to do this in that situation. More from a manager standpoint, I think that if you think you can manage a game, you just go, this is supposed to happen, that's supposed to happen. Every game's different. So I believe you have to manage from the gut at times. You can't say, well, in this situation, I should do this, should do that. If you're afraid to go against what the book said you should do, I think you're going to be in trouble. I think it, it's always been like that. Uh, it's getting, we're getting away from that a little bit, but I don't think it's for the best. All right, you guys have been super generous with your time, so I got one more question I want to ask each of you. Craig, I'm going to start with you. Since we've been talking a lot about Jordan, do you have a favorite Jordan moment? Huh. Well, I, 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 like I said before, I wasn't a huge basketball fan, but I, the, what sticks out in my mind, and I don't even remember what championship it was that they won, when, when he broke down in the dressing room with the trophy, and I believe it was, it was his father that had passed away there. It was. It yeah, was it was after emotional. it was on Father's Day after they won the fourth championship after he yeah. came back from playing baseball. Yes, and that was, uh, and, and again, I didn't follow it that closely, but I remember seeing that, and it was, uh, and it, again, it showed me that this guy, obviously, was maybe the greatest athlete of all time, but he was, uh, he played his sport with uh, probably the greatest heart of all time. Riggs, you got a favorite Jordan moment, whether it's personal or watching it on TV. You know, just the the game that he was uh, extremely sick. You know, whatever his temperature was and they played all those minutes and and just dominated the game uh, because you know it's it's you might be able to, you might get through a baseball game maybe you know if you're playing left field you might get through some innings of a game when you are not feeling well but running up and down the court like he was doing that that game was phenomenal to me and I it's uh Something you can point out to players like, really, you're not going to play. Do you remember Michael Jordan, what he did? You, you can't play today. And, um, you know, it's extraordinary what he did that day. Gene, you have baseball and basketball stuff with Michael. Do you have a favorite moment? Well, you know, as I see this, uh, the last dance, what I think it's called, you know, he, he's a he's more fabulous player than I thought he was. I'll say that. I mean, I see some things there that I didn't think anybody could do. But I remember when Michael left. You know, he left, uh, decided he was going to uh, well, retire from baseball. He's not playing anymore. And we were out stretching in the uh, outfield. And all of a sudden, the plane came over. And come to find out it was, I believe it was a Nike plane, flew right over and tipped his wings to us. I thought that was something. <laughs> I, and I think, you know, Michael really wanted to show us how much he thought of us. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget that. How great is it? I mean, I, I know that people, there were a lot of people who laughed at his minor league baseball career, but for a guy who didn't play baseball for 14 years to hit 202, drive in 50 runs and steal 30 bases, how incredible is that? Well, I don't think people realize how hard it is to hit. And, and more, you know, it's funny, Jim Leland called me last night and said, did Jordan really drive in 51 runs? <laughs> and, and that's what's more amazing than anything. You know, 51 runs in the minor leagues is a lot. And, uh, do I think he'd have made the big leagues? No. Maybe at 18 he might have. At 30 years old, Michael Jordan wasn't going to get to the big leagues. I don't, I don't think. But uh, 
I think he showed everybody how you're supposed to go about things. I think it helped us in the spring, and I'm sure it helped them in Birmingham also. Dave, what's your favorite Jordan moment? You know, I I think when him and Steve Kerr had the confrontation on the court and it got physical and Phil Jackson threw Michael Jordan out of practice. And think about this. This is Michael Jordan and he leaves. Number one, he leaves. You see some of these kids, how they react nowadays. And Phil said he went down into the locker room and before he said anything to Michael, Michael said, yeah, I know Phil. Uh, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. I got to get his number. I'll call him. I'll make it right. And to me that, you know, we talk about Michael Jordan, the man for what he did on the court, but boy, there was a lot more substance to this guy than what I ever thought, you know, and just hearing that story, you get thrown off the the court. I mean, and you're the best player in the NBA, not just your team and you're in the locker room and the coach comes down before the coach has to, okay, Michael, don't quit, you know, and here we go. And your agent's going to call me and this is going to be a grievance. And, you know, all the crap that we deal with now, uh, he says, Phil, I got it. I was wrong. I'll get his number. I'll make it right. I mean, there's that's a special, special guy in my mind. Dave, Riggs, Gene, Craig, thank you guys so much for, for sharing your stories. I'm glad that we were talking about your individual sports, too. And I appreciate you guys lending your experience during the 90s and what this was like uh, with, with everyone who is watching and, and listening. All right, Mark. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.